From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, talking about what happened at Richmond City Hall yesterday and uh, some chaos, you could say, both outside the council chambers. No drugs! No drugs! No drugs! No drugs! No drugs! No drugs! So some of the chanting outside the uh, council chambers, there was also, uh, well, a difference of opinion and uh, people on both sides, those who are in favour of potentially setting up a consumption site at the Richmond Hospital and those who are very much opposed. It's about, are we going to put a safe place at the hospital? The kids are already dying. I know five people that died last week. There's no safe place. Do not take drugs. I don't take them. All right, just a little bit of what happened outside Richmond City Hall. It was also very loud inside. Eleanor Sturko is joining me now, MLA for Surrey South, also the Shadow Minister for Mental Health, Addiction, Recovery and Education. Eleanor Sturko, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Jill, for having me on. Well, thank you uh, for for doing this. Uh, I understand you were at the meeting as well, weren't you? Well, I was outside, and then the MLA uh, representing that area, Teresa Watt, went into the chamber meeting, but been following this closely, and and we're actually in support of the residents' opposition to this proposal, and we're echoing their calls for a strategy focused on recovery and support. So what specifically do you think is the issue or, or what is the, the reason to oppose something like this? You know, there's very little evidence at this time that we're actually reducing the number of deaths um, with the expansion of the overdose prevention sites. In fact, you know, I've been looking for evidence, you know, looking at different studies that have come out in March 2022. They had one that you know, it may decrease the paramedic attendance, but there isn't actually any evidence they reduce local hospitalization or mortality rates. And listen, this is a community where individuals that I spoke to, letters we've received to both mine and Teresa Watts offices, this is a community that supports recovery. They do want to help reduce opioid deaths. They want to be part of the solution, but they do not feel that the way to do this at this time in their community is through an overdose prevention site. And keeping in mind that this isn't something that was proactively sought by the health authority, this was an initiative uh, taken upon the city council. And and I I completely get what you're saying. And certainly there has been a lot of study done about this. If you look at Insight in Vancouver or some of the other consumption sites. And I think the statistic or I think the number that that keeps being used is that there has never been a fatal overdose in one of these sites. Mm -hmm. That if if the goal of this... It's false. Actually, we this morning I had several people call me and, and write to me and say, "L, this can't be true." And in fact, the summary of the 2023 coroner's report does report that there has been at least one death in an overdose prevention site. And what's even more interesting, uh, Jill, is that they define deaths. It only includes things that take place inside there, inclusive of waiting rooms. But if you were transported to the hospital and died, they don't count it. And if it happened outside on the sidewalk, they don't count it or in the parking lot. So I think, you know, we have to be cautious in saying that no one's ever died associated to these sites. Can they be helpful? Of course. 
And can we help possibly direct people to services? That's a potential too. But, you know, I think that the community, at least in Richmond at this time, has seen what's happened in other locations. They've seen the street disorder. They've seen some of the, the unchecked issues that have come along with this type of facility, and they don't want this to happen. And I can tell you that in Surrey, we have actually at the Peace Arch Hospital an overdose prevention site, and I receive countless complaints from community members. Not that they don't want people to receive help, but because there's no cleaning up of drug paraphernalia, that there's no cleaning up of, you know, different foils and residues, and that there is an associated increase of individuals in the community associated to street disorder. And it's, we need to make a balance. And there hasn't been any evidence that we can see that the NDP has really done enough to address those concerns. So I definitely, you know, understand the concern of Richmond residents. I think that their request to want to help, but in a way that in which they believe will be effective in both keeping people safe from overdose, but also helping protect the community from street disorder is very reasonable. And, and, and what you're saying sounds like, and I've heard this before as well, that if you even go back to the four pillars approach, we, we are not implementing all four pillars. There, There is, yes, the harm reduction. There is not the treatment. There are not the wraparound services. So is that... What, what the message you think is trying to get out? Because if you look at the crowd and you hear the crowd, uh, there were people screaming, just don't do drugs. Well, that sounds great. If only it was that easy <laughs> that somebody who was addicted could just wake up tomorrow morning and say, okay, great, I won't do drugs anymore. I mean, we know it's not. So is it the actual push for wraparound services? I believe so, yeah. You know, we spent a lot of time uh, speaking to different people, speaking to organizers, talking to people with children in the community, so like last night, you know, the clips, very raucous, of course, but there was also a lot of opportunity to speak with people. And, and they've said, look, we don't want to not be part of the solution. We're not trying to stop people from getting help. But the way in which that the community feels very strongly is that they want recovery-oriented services. And you're right about the four pillars. We've certainly had a huge push for harm reduction, which is fair. But but one of the things is that we need to expand that definition of harm reduction to go beyond the individual, and we need to look at the harm done on the entire community. For example, you know, an influx of street disorder, programs like safe supply programs, if there is diversion, are those creating and exacerbating uh, issues within the community? We have to start taking more of you know, whole of the animal approach and looking at the entirety and the totality of our circumstances. And, you know, it's time for us to listen to community members. It's not that they are trying to demonize people who use drugs when they bring up issues that are affecting them as well. And that's why we do have to expand this definition of harm reduction to include other people in the community. We have to prevent overdose deaths. Yes, it's a priority but we have to ensure a very balanced approach in terms of making sure that communities themselves can stay healthy and that we don't lose the support of the public. We need to have community members on side in order for us to expand services. This community is being very vocal that the services that they would like to have are definitely recovery-oriented.
And do you think that the vocal crowd that was at Richmond City Council last night, and I'm guessing we'll be back there again today, is that is that a good representation of the city of Richmond? It's certainly not everybody in the city of Richmond. There were those that were at the council meeting who were in favor of this as well. How do you kind of decide or how do you know who is actually the most representative if, if it's the community that gets to choose? Well, I'll tell you this, is that we have a lot, especially from the current government, the support being for services that are, to some people's opinion, enabling. So we see a lot of um, programs going forward that are not recovery-oriented. So we are, at this time, in the position where we want to help elevate the voices of people who have a different perspective, a shared perspective with us, that we want to see things move in a direction that helps people get better. Um, and so this is why we've chosen to to support people who are, are, are at this time asking for this particular overdose prevention site not to go forward. But, you know, you're right, Joe. How can you tell what is the wish of every single person in a community? You never can. But we certainly have a lot of pushing on, on one side for harm reduction services. And in the province right now, not as much pushing or not as much attention, at least from our government, the NDP, Um, For things that are recovery-oriented, they talk about a recovery-oriented system of care, but only when we focus all of our services, including harm reduction and including overdose prevention, to help move people to the next level. And we're definitely not seeing that in the province right now. Eleanor Sterko, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Jill. We are continuing to talk about the fallout, new information about the millions of dollars that were spent on the development and maintenance of the Arrive Can app. But we heard from the Auditor General yesterday. Earlier today, Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc said that the pandemic had a lot to do with some of the issues. This software was developed during a global pandemic, a public health emergency like Canada had not seen in a century. We needed to act quickly to keep Canadians safe and adapt every process accordingly. But we recognize with hindsight that things should have clearly been done differently. Well, let's bring on Peter Julian, the new Democrat MP for New Westminster Burnaby, also NDP House leader. Peter Julian, thank you so much for being here today. So good to be with you. Uh, That comment from the public safety minister is also something the Auditor General mentioned, saying, yes, there was a pandemic. There were very trying times and different circumstances. But she also made a point of saying you can't write all of this off to that or or excuse all of uh, what she has uncovered as far as the spending because of that. How do you respond to that? Uh, I think she's absolutely right. And I, I thank the Auditor General for for really examining this issue. The, the reality is uh, this was a misuse of taxpayers' money. Uh, talking about $60 million, uh, there wasn't value uh, for money. And this has been chronic, Jill. As, as you know, within the federal government, we saw uh, both under the current government, the We Charity scandal, uh, now this, this scandal around the uh, Arrive Can and the previous Harper government. We had the IT scandal that cost $400 million, the, the G8 Legacy Fund scandal. These are all procurement scandals that come from politicians not following the rules. And we have the rules in, in, in place. They need to be respected and obeyed. And we also need to ensure that if a co- contractor uh, doesn't fulfill its obligations to 
to Canadian taxpayers that they have to pay the contract back. And, and that it hasn't happened for a long time in Ottawa. Over the last two governments, both Conservative and Liberal, it's time that that changed so that, that when we invest taxpayers' money, we know that there's a good return. Looking specifically at this one, and I get what you're saying, that there there is a history and there have been issues in the past as well. But given that this is what we are looking at right now, and this is an app that started off being an $80,000 initial version of the app. Yes, it needed to be changed and, uh, and expanded as the pandemic continued. But to balloon to $59 million, and the Auditor General even saying she doesn't know exactly how much it costs because the record keeping was so poor... How can you continue to prop up a government and support a government that oversaw that? Well, first off, we we are getting to the bottom of it. It was Gord Johns, who's an NDP MP, who first pushed for the procurement ombudsman to look into this this case. We are supportive of a full investigation on this. Um, As far as what the NDP is doing in a minority parliament, and and it thankfully is a minority parliament, is we're pushing for things like dental care, uh, for legislation that actually helps helps workers and 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 things like uh, the doubling up the GST credit, the f- famous uh, grocery rebate, uh, all of those things the NDP is doing in a minority parliament. But when we get to a scandal like this, as we did with the previous Harper government, we fight to get to the bottom of it. And in, in this case, it was Gord Johns who first uh, really blew the whistle on this, an NDP MP from Vancouver Island. And we've had Jagmeet Singh and the NDP pushing hard to get answers for folks. It's unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. It was unacceptable under the previous government, uh, Harper government. It's unacceptable under the Trudeau government. Uh, when when Canadians pay their taxes, they need to know that they're being that those taxes are being used appropriately. And when you have rules in place, it's not up to Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Harper to override. Uh, those rules. It's to respect those rules so that we ensure the public tender, we ensure that there is uh, people who apply to provide that good or that service to the Canadian government, that they're doing it on a competitive basis. And if they don't meet the criteria, that they pay the contract back. And that's something that hasn't happened in Ottawa. And it's about time it starts to happen in every single case. Uh, and when you talk about, uh, I know you mentioned some of the other things that the New Democrats are uh, doing, uh, but uh, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the, the federal New Democrats, uh, also uh, came out with a statement earlier uh, talking about pharmacare. Uh, he was also quoted earlier as saying that if the plan doesn't go ahead, that could potentially be the end of the agreement with the Liberals. Is this not big enough, the the, the scandal that has unfolded about ArriveCan to to also be something that brings down that deal? Uh, well, for, first off, uh, unfortunately, tragically, this is not the biggest scandal we've seen over the last 15 years. Uh, the, the IT scandal under under Stephen Harper was $400 million. Uh, the, the Phoenix pay system, which has been an incredible boondoggle, was started by the Conservatives, continued by the Liberals. I, I think this is symptomatic of Ottawa. Generally, both the Liberals and Conservatives have a lot of ties to a lot of in the corporate sector. And so we see these kinds of of egregious abuses of taxpayers' money because of the the close contact that liberals and conservatives have. Uh, We we need to change the culture here in Ottawa, and that's what the NDP is is fighting for, absolutely. Now, you you mentioned pharmacare. This is vitally important. I've got constituents in Westminster and Burnaby that are paying $1,000 a month for heart medication. 
having to make that tough choice between paying uh, to keep themselves alive and for their families or, or keeping a roof over their head and keeping food on the table. And so pharmacare is vitally important. And yes, we're pushing the Liberals uh, to the wall. They don't want to do pharmacare. We believe it's vitally important for Canadian uh, for Canadians' health and for Canadians' pocketbooks to have access to pharmacare in the same way we have access to the universal health care system. But is that the sticking point with pharmacare? And I know uh, we're talking Arrive Can as well, but in the vein of pharmacare, is that, is that one of the sticking points that there are people that, yes, like you said, are paying a thousand, probably paying more than that a month, yeah. and and that the the program, the proposal, or the idea would be bring in pharmacare for people who aren't covered, because there are a lot of Canadians as well who have coverage through their employers that don't pay out of pocket. Why would we get rid of that part of the system that works? Well, that's that's certainly what we've done to force uh, the issue on dental care, right? And and seniors now in the Lower Mainland and throughout British Columbia are starting to have access to uh, the NDP's dental care plan. Uh, the idea is to ensure that people who don't have access to a dental care plan themselves can actually access uh, uh, d- dental care through through the program that the NDP, that Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have forced. Uh, and people with disabilities, uh, families with kids under 18, all w- will be able to access dental care. Pharmacare is a bit different. Uh, when we look at New Zealand, for example, that having that bulk uh, purchasing ability in New Zealand with universal pharmacare meant up to 90% reduction in the cost of medication. And, and what's been pointed out uh, by numerous commissions and studies is that overall Canadians uh, really benefit from having uh, universal pharmacare. The cost of medication comes down. Pharmaceutical companies aren't, aren't able to get a sweetheart deal. They have to lower their prices to access what is a huge market. Uh, but for the moment, the debate is around the legislation. It's the foundation of pharmacare. And, and we're pushing the government very hard on this. And, and as you pointed out, Jagmeet Singh's comments are, this is make or break. Uh, if the Liberals aren't willing to put take that first step and put in place the foundation for pharmacare, uh, then we're going to make different decisions. And what do you mean by make different decisions? Uh, well, cur- currently, uh, it, the government... Uh, we are supporting them on on confidence motions, not on other bills. In fact, the NDP's uh, forced uh, uh, a lot of improvements to legislation because uh, we're not we're not governed by that. But uh, there are about half a dozen confidence votes over the course of of a year, or half a dozen uh, periods where there are confidence votes. And up until now, uh, we have voted uh, yes, uh, confidence in the government. Um, if, if the pharmacare doesn't come through, uh, we will make a different decision on that. Pharmacare is vital. I, I know for people in my riding, it makes a huge difference. And when you've got people paying $1,000 a month, that's $12,000 a year for heart medication that keeps you alive. There are so many people in my riding and right across the lower mainland that, that are impacted. And, and that's why the NDP is, is fighting to the wall to make sure that this first step happens. And I wanted to just go back because people are expressing anger about ArriveCan. We know from what the Auditor General said yesterday that there were so many contracts. I mean, $25 million given to two people working out of a basement and so many questions about where the money was going, how the money was being doled out. How do you get the confidence back in people? You've mentioned other governments as well. It almost seems like Canadians now expect that their tax dollars in some uh, instances are going to be wasted. 
it's kind of easy for the new Democrats to call out the other governments because you've not formed federal government. You've, we've not had a new Democratic uh, prime minister. But how do you get back the confidence of Canadians? Well, first off, by supporting the Auditor General and the Parliamentary Budgetary Officer, Stephen Harper, Stephen Harper's government uh, slashed radically the, the budget for the Auditor General. The Auditor General has the responsibility as an independent officer of Parliament to, to really show Canadians the straight goods. And so bolstering uh, her work and, and her department's work, the Auditor General, as an independent officer is vitally important. Secondly, put in place the recommendations. Uh, that coming out of the, the scandals I mentioned in the previous Conservative government, there wasn't a change in culture. And, and this is why the, the recommendations, having rules in place that make sure that you're going to public tender, that you're making sure uh, that if a, if a if a company reneges on a contract, that they have to pay the money back. All of those things are vitally important. And I, and I think uh, you're right to say that, that folks, when they see a scandal like this, deplorable, uh, they lose confidence in how governments can respond to the needs of people. Uh, we, we restore confidence by making sure independent officers of parliament are calling the shots, that they're able to expose these uh, scandals to people, and then putting in place firm rules that everybody has to follow. And, and so I, I think uh, we're, we're going to be pushing hard for a full investigation. Uh, we, the, it, it is possible that there was criminal intent and the RCMP needs to be uh, looking into that as well. And we are going to see uh, what happened around the Rive camp. But we need to put in place rules that all governments have to respect federally. Uh, that's something that uh, we're going to be pushing for in Parliament. Peter Julian, we will leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Always good to be with you. Take oh. care. No drugs! No drugs! No drugs! No drugs! No drugs! No drugs! Well, if you are just joining us, that is the sound, some of the sound from outside Richmond City Hall last night. They are continuing the discussion about the potential for a consumption site, a supervised consumption site that would be part of the Richmond Hospital. Many speakers last night, and as you heard there, a lot of uh, different opinions being voiced both inside and outside council chambers. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Guy Felicella, harm reduction and recovery advocate. Guy, great to talk with you again. Hey, thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, I know, were you at the meeting last night as well? I know I, I spoke to it. I was online. Though. Right. Okay. Sorry. I knew I was remembering you being part. Yes, you were a, a, one of the, the presenters to the council. When you see and hear what was happening outside council and inside as well, the mayor had to call order a few times. What is your reaction? Oh, it's, it, it, it's sad, you know, Jill. I mean, uh, being a former substance user myself, I'm not shocked at the comments. I mean, uh, I heard it my whole life. Uh, it's just sad that, uh, you know, what I noticed is that a lot of people may have thought that way, but they weren't voicing it out loud like that. And uh, when you do hear words like that, it's very stigmatizing and demoralizing, especially to people who are, um, you know, struggling. And it, it's just, you know, uh, where's our humanity? I mean, it, it was so mean and, and the comments were vile at, at, at a few uh, of the speakers where there was so much of a misunderstanding of just the complex issues that we're facing in our society. 
A caller earlier to this program uh, whose son passed away, uh, said he was at the meeting last night and said there were people even saying uh, when, when, when somebody would make the argument that these sites help to save lives, uh, people saying things like, I don't care, let them die, which I think we can all agree that is heartless. That is not going to help anybody in any way. But then there were other concerns, I guess, being raised saying, well, where's the treatment? Where's the prevention? Where are the other pillars that go along with this? Is that, Mm -hmm. do you think, a valid concern that we shouldn't only be focusing on supervised consumption? We should also be focusing on those other pillars. Yeah, Jill, but we are. We're focusing on all of it. I mean, you know, this is not even, I think this is completely blown out of proportion and gotten into, you know, a political wedge issue, as you see everybody kind of stockpile in on this. I mean, it's a proposal of the Richmond city looking at it saying, hey, we had 26 deaths last year. Like, what can we do to make it better? Uh, Is there stuff that we can look into as a city? And so this is just the beginning stages. It's not like they're going to drop a site in there anywhere. And it could be how important supervised consumption site services are, because we do actually you know, tell people don't use substances alone, but then they have nobody to use with or a place where they could use. And there can be many options of supervised uh, consumption services for people, whether that's even somebody just watching over somebody. Um, So I, I think what's happened is that, you know, politically is that everybody is trying to, you know, garner uh, votes off the lives of people struggling. And, 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 you know, it's not, Nothing has happened. Um, that's just that that part to me is the disheartening and, and maddening part of it. A couple of people called in as well. Well, my, my first guest uh, is uh, BCU United MLA, Eleanor Sturko. She talked about Peace Arch Hospital, saying that since a consumption site started operating there, there have been concerns about garbage outside the hospital, about uh, paraphernalia and such. We had a caller from Nanaimo saying that there is a consumption site near here's place in Nanaimo. They've noticed crime rates going up and paraphernalia on the ground. Is that, do you think, a legitimate concern that people are afraid, and we saw it in Yelltown as well, that when these sites open up in some circumstances, they lead to those issues in a neighbourhood? I mean, it's a it's a valid concern for sure. But I mean, at the same time, you have to look at the consequences that we're facing right now. Like, I mean, listen, there's a lot of other issues that are going on behind this. I just think people are making the supervised consumption sites uh, kind of the scapegoat for other challenging issues that people are struggling with. You know, one of the things that we should be also uh, looking at and we do look at is obviously the education of what's on the street. Like, you know, we have these daily drug alerts, um, you know, for people to to know what's in their substances or drug checking services. But the the reality is, is that, um, you know, maybe they need to put some more uh, supervised boxes outside where people can discard their paraphernalia. I mean, I can't really say or not say that. Obviously, I know some people are you know, using in a rush and do discard their stuff on the ground there. So we have to look at, you know, having uh, roving outreach services as well that can come by and pick it up. And if you do see it, call a number, somebody comes and picks it up. We do a lot of that in in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. 
how does for for the misinformation or for people maybe when when you're looking at it and saying people just don't get what these sites are, what these sites provide, how do these sites help people help people stay alive and help people get better? Well, I tell you, I used Insight four thousand times in a ten-year time frame. You know, uh, whether that site, if that site didn't exist, I'd have used four thousand times somewhere else. I, I mean, you know, what it did do is it brought me back to life multiple times, connected me with other health services such as hospitalization stays for uh, severe osteomyelitis, bone infections, and detox services. Uh, they took me, uh, uh, got a Greyhound bus ticket to go to Kelowna to go to treatment a couple times. I mean, literally, this was a stopping point for me to get to recovery services. And what people um, don't understand is that we don't build connections with people who use drugs alone. They're using alone. And that's the sadness of it, is that people are struggling with loneliness and isolation and feel judged because they are struggling. Having these facilities are so vital to move people to the next stages of wellness in their life. And I will tell you this, that if somebody walks into that facility, that there's, there's a response inside that them saying, like, hey, you know what, like, uh, I want to I wanna start taking care of myself just a little bit better. It's the starting point of, of many people's recovery process. Is there treatment available if somebody walks in and says, I'm here because I want treatment, I want to stop doing this? Oh, you bet. Yeah, you bet. There's a detox floor right on the second floor of Insight. There's also a transition floor. Also, too, we also work with other health services like the Road to Recovery, the R2R at St. Paul's Hospital. I mean, we can get you in to see an addictions uh, doctor immediately at the RAC clinic. Um, and then get you on the road to uh, road to recovery, whether that's through detox services. We also have stabilization services. And we also have what people don't often talk about is all the things we do have. We have the junction at Vancouver Coastal Health, uh, which is a recovery community center. We have the recovery cafe, which is on Clark Drive. These are all supportive services that benefit people who are struggling, that are looking to change their lives. They're all, we have a wealth of them available. Uh, we also have contracts out for recovery societies where people can go to and, you know, have have bed stays. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And people are just saying, you know, we're putting everything into harm reduction. Well, yeah, we do. But we put everything into everything because we want to help the full continuum of care that benefits people. All right. Well, Guy, I know we're going to continue having uh, this conversation, but uh, we'll stop there for today. Thank you again for coming back on the show. Anytime, Joe, anytime. We are going to talk a little bit more now about some reforms, some amendments that are being called for to the Residential Tenancy Act in BC. The group First United, which is a responsive low barrier service provider, it's a group that serves low income, underhoused and homeless individuals in Vancouver's downtown east side, has just put forward this report. And joining me to talk a bit more about it is Dr. Sarah Marston, report author, also the director of Systems Change and Legal at First United. Uh, Dr. Sarah Marston, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we get into some of the calls or the amendments that are outlined in this report, what exactly is the law reform report? So this is a report outlining some changes that we are advocating for to the Residential Tenancy Act specifically, and it draws on information that we have from research, um, from 
academic research, also an eviction mapping, large eviction mapping survey that we did, as well as laws that we see in other jurisdictions that we can draw on and uh, community consultation. So draws on all those sources to say, you know, how could the law be different now to prevent some of these problems? All right. So certain thing, certainly things that we have been talking about and that are top of mind for a lot of people. Uh, looking at some of the proposed amendments in this report, one has to do with landlords and that uh, they would have to apply for evictions. How would something like that work? So right now, um, the way the law works in BC is that in most cases, landlords give what's called a notice to end tenancy to a tenant. And if the tenant wants to fight it, they have to go to the residential tenancy branch and fight it. And we want to see that changed so that the landlord is the one. If the landlord wants to evict, the landlord has to make an application. The landlord has to bring evidence to justify that application because, frankly, um, a lot of people are not using the residential tenancy branch because they're afraid. All right. And and would it then apply to for any uh, reason, such as uh, if a landlord is taking the space back or family moving in, if they are legitimately taking the space, would it still be something that they would have to uh, apply for an eviction? Yeah, that would be the case. And in fact, um, this is not a new idea because there was already an amendment like that in 2021 um, to deal with the rent evictions. There were a lot of bad faith rent evictions happening in B.C., and the government changed the Residential Tenancy Act to make it so that landlords had to make an, an application for renovation eviction. And this would be very similar to that, where a landlord would have to make an application just showing why why they need it. If they're saying a child is moving in, they're going to university, or they could give some more information about that, for example. All right. Uh, the report also calls for much bigger penalties uh, if uh, if uh, a landlord breaks some of the rules. I think it is, is going up to $100,000 for individuals, $500,000 for corporate landlords. Can you talk a, a little bit more about what that would look like? Yeah, so those numbers are for the maximum amount of penalties, and this would be in line with what has Ontario has recently updated its law, and those are the amounts um, in the Ontario law. So we are modeling it a bit on that. And the reason is here just to make sure that there's enough ability for the compliance and enforcement branch to be able to issue a penalty that is sufficient to deter a landlord um, in the present housing crisis it's not difficult for landlords to to make a lot of money by evicting tenants. And if they're doing something that's against the law, it's important for those penalties to be large enough that they are effectively deterring that sort of behaviour. And what about the issue, and I know this has been a call before uh, from different organizations, that rent increases, even though uh, the the rent increases are capped at how much landlords can raise the rent, but that changes if somebody moves out. Uh, Does it address the idea of tying the increases to a unit, to a suite rather than the tenant? Yeah, that's absolutely what we're asking for, um, that it would be tied to the suite rather than the tenant. And one of the main reasons for that is that right now, In the present housing environment, landlords are strongly incentivized to evict a tenant by any means possible because they know they can make a lot more money by having that tenant out than by keeping them there because there is no rent control between tenancies. So we're hopeful that having rent control between tenancies tied to the unit would help to disincentivize those sort of evictions. I know your group has spent a lot of time looking at this as well, and, and you mentioned the mapping project and that the project itself also showing that 25% of people who are evicted end up homeless. That seems like such a large number. How, did, how were you able to come up with that? 
Yeah, it seemed like a very high number to us, uh, frankly, as well. Um, so this was this was a number that we captured by asking people how much. The, the question was actually how much did you have to spend? How much more did you have to spend in rent after you got evicted? And we had a number of different answers. People could choose five hundred dollars more, a thousand dollars more, and then we had this one at the end that said, "I didn't find a place to live." And then we saw that there's extraordinarily high number of people who didn't find a place to live. Um, and this is in our eviction mapping data set. And then people also gave specific information about what happened to them when they couldn't find a place to live. So it ranges from street homelessness to living in shelters, living in vehicles, couch surfing, um, you know, family separated, living in motels, all sorts of situations that we saw. So, yes, that is a high number. And I should also point out that this this is not only a survey that was taking place in the downtown east side, but actually had respondents from all over BC, and we did see a very high rate of homelessness um, after eviction. What happens now with this report coming out with the number of amendments or requests for these amendments to take place? What do you do with this information now? So we will be asking, uh, we're, we're advocating to the government, um, which is, uh, those are obviously the folks who have the power to make changes to the law. Um, so we're asking for these amendments specifically. And if you look at the report, we have very specific things in the legislation. We're saying, you know, this section, here's what we're advocating for. Here's what we're requesting. So it will be in the hands of government and it will be up to government to determine which, if any of these changes it wants to make. And of course, we'll keep, um, we'll keep advocating in the community as well. All right. Well, we will leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more uh, about this and what has been identified in the report. Uh, Appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.